and relationship with you. Lord, as we dive into the beginning of the series tonight, would you give us wisdom beyond all understanding? As we begin to look at how to look at your word and how the same word of God, the Holy Spirit, that inspired the text of scripture also dwells within us and how that should empower us as we look into the scriptures. In your sins and we pray. Amen. Um, say hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. Um, Jason, if you want to grab that from her. I, I took over your job because you, you dipped. Everyone say hermeneutics again. It's hermeneutics. recording. What is hermeneutics? I'm recording. Excellent. So it's studying how to read the Bible. Um, I had someone um, who does similar ministry to uh, what I am doing. I, I said, hey, what they asked, what are you teaching this fall? And I said, I'm teaching them hermeneutics. And he said, do you think that's too big of a concept for your students? And I said, uh, no. Uh, one, if they listen to hip-hop music, they should be able to deal with words much larger than that. Um, and if they're on any social media platform, uh, they make up words all the time. Um, they're able to go with it. So I believe that you guys can understand what the term hermeneutics is. Um, we're doing biblical hermeneutics. She can apply this hermeneutics to really any ancient text, but we're going to be in the Bible. So when I was a kid, there was a rule at home. There was a rule at home. I got to play a half hour of video games for every half hour that I spent reading. So that means if I wanted to light it up on Madden, on Super Mario Kart, NBA Jam, or GoldenEye, that was the rule. And I think it was a good rule for me, right? But, looking back, it was a trick. It was a nasty, nasty trick that my folks played on me. Because I would get lost in books. I would get lost. In second grade, I was tearing through the boxcar kids and every Beverly Cleary book that um, she wrote. By third grade, it was Goosebumps. By fourth grade, it was the Redwall series. By fifth grade, I found out uh, that the Star Wars had an expanded universe. And by seventh grade, I read my first Tom Clancy novel in which I got through all 740 pages of Rainbow Six in three days. So good. So good. But I fell in love with reading. Well, I thought I got something better at the end, you know, of my half hour reading the video games. I ended up reading for an hour, an hour and a half before I turned on the N64. And I got something better at the beginning instead. Now, as we focus on the topic of how do I read my Bible, I am not going to command that you read your Bible for 30 minutes to earn 30 minutes on a game or Instagram, even though that might not be a bad practice. But my hope is that you fall in love with Scripture, much like I fell in love with reading those so long ago. And it can be hard. That's why we're going to talk about it today. I'm going to give you one thing to begin to help you unlock the joy of consistent scripture reading. And next week, we're going to give you another eight. So this week, it's just one. Next week, eight. First, I have the question of this. Why are we looking at why it's hard in the first place? Because we have to acknowledge that for many of us, it isn't our natural wiring to jump to scripture when life is hard and when life is good. And that is for two reasons. That's for two reasons. Good job, Brian. One, it's too daunting. It's too daunting. Or two, it's too familiar. Everyone say it's too daunting. It's too 
And everyone say it's too familiar. So let's cover the first issue. It's too daunting. My parents bought me an action Bible in fifth grade. I don't know if some of you have that, but it was pretty wicked awesome. Um, Angel Gabriel rocked a six-pack, um, and on the page where David and Goliath did battle, Goliath was essentially a WWE wrestler with his lighting up behind him as he entered the, the valley to face David. It was pretty awesome, um, but it was also really thick. It was the full scriptures. So it sat next to my bed many a night, and I was simply too afraid to open it because if I started something, I wanted to finish it. And it just seemed too daunting. Second, it had words I didn't understand. I was in sixth grade. Some of those Hebrew names might as well have been a foreign language. Newsflash, it was a foreign language. I would get so confused over some of what was happening. Third, at that point, I wasn't saved. I just didn't care, right? I'd open it for kicks and giggles or maybe to make my parents happy, but at the end of the day, I had no relationship with the text. I would occasionally read a story here or there, mostly to work towards another goal, right? AJ, if you read this much scripture, you go to Pizza Hut on Friday. You bet, Mom, right? You can con me into anything, especially food. But I hope that as we go throughout the year, you have a better understanding of the book so that it doesn't seem so daunting when you pick it up. That's why we're starting here. I don't want it to seem so daunting. Number two, it's too familiar. Everyone say it's too familiar. It's too familiar. Next week, we're going to start with the story of Adam and Eve. And I know for many of you, when you hear that, you cringe. Because you might have heard the story dozens of times, if not hundreds of times, over the course of your time in church. So, AJ, why are we dealing with it? If you've heard it hundreds of times, why are we dealing with it? Because we're going to hit the highlights of the Torah over the course of the next few weeks. The Torah is the first five books of Scripture. Um, the Pentateuch is another name for it. And the Torah, by some people, is referred to as the Old Testament of the Old Testament. If you do not understand what's happening in the first five books of the script, of the text, then all the histories and the prophets are pretty meaningless. And then the person that the histories are leading to and the person that the prophets are pointing to in the New Testament are meaningless if you don't understand the old and if you don't have the new in mind. So that's why we're having this succession of scripture. I want you to understand how all of Scripture paints this amazing story, and it uses different genres, it uses different types of um, authors. It's beautiful because it all goes in together, right? And we're going to be able to begin to see the night sky. Let me give you this illustration. Each event that takes place in Scripture, think of it like a star in the sky. It's beautiful. If you look on its own. If you have a telescope, you can identify it, track it, see how it goes throughout the year, see how it interacts with the other stars in the sky. But what makes that star even more beautiful is when you understand that star in the midst of the constellations. 
And like the magi that sought the child in the first century, who watched the stars and wanted to see how they interacted with each other, this year I want you to be able to see how Genesis is just as important to the story of David, which is just as important to the story of uh, Jesus in the New Testament, which is just as important to the story as the formation of the church in Acts and the letters that Paul writes and echoes so much of what happens in Revelation. It all interacts in one beautiful constellation. And it's the reason that many of your older saints that have gone before you, who are in their 50s and 60s and, yes, 90s and 100s, can look at the text and say, oh, I never saw that before. Because there's always more to unlock. There's always more to unravel. So how can we start doing that this week? How can we start doing that this week? Matt Smethers, in his book, Before You Open Your Bible, has the first chapter, which we're going to cover tonight, because I think it covers one of the most important concepts in scriptures. And if you understand this concept, then it can help you overcome the other hurdles. And that is the power of prayer. Do you approach the Bible with a praying spirit? Do you approach the Bible with a praying spirit? Much of the next part of the text is taken directly from that book, but I felt it was so good I wanted to share it with you. Think about this way. Prayer is old news if you're a Christian. If prayer were a class, it would not be an elective in high school or college. It would not even be something that you take in 12th grade. Prayer is the class that you take in kindergarten. Because it is by prayer that the Christian life begins to become more real to you as you interact with your sovereign God. But do we take prayer to the Word of God as we dive into and pull from it as we interact with the text and the Scripture? Think about it. The Holy Spirit that dwells within us is the same Holy Spirit that inspired the text of Scripture. So there is this interplay that is happening between the Spirit of God that dwells within you and the text on the page. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, yes, but that Word is also spoken to us when we also open up the very words of God. Matt says this. He says, I'm convinced that a prayerless approach to God's word is a major reason for the low level of dissatisfaction that hums beneath the surface of our lives. We rob ourselves of joy and peace when we fail to pray. Indeed, approaching scripture apart from prayer is one of the most counterproductive things we can do. For prayerless Christianity is powerless. We've talked about this even in our study on prayer, about how praying can be in response to God's word. What does it mean to pray in anticipation of the word that God is speaking to us? I gave you all a bookmark. I'm sure you right now. This is the Prayers of Anticipation. John Piper wrote these. If you have a Bible at home, I'd love you to put this in your Bible that you can use as you open the text. Especially on those days where it's hard for you to get excited about the word, 
then this can be a natural reset moment for you to dwell on these texts, pray these texts, and then dive in to the text of Scripture. So the acronym is I-O-U-S. I don't think it spells anything, um, but that's the acronym. And it corresponds to a prayer in the book of Psalms each. So let's cover I. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Psalm 119.36. This psalm reminds us of a very hard truth. Our hearts are not naturally bent in the right direction. How do I know this? It's the first thing you do when you get up in the morning. Let me give you the first thing I do when I get up in the morning. These are the first things I'm thinking. One, what child has just woken me up? It's the first thing I'm thinking every morning. And many mornings, it's one of the four. Never the same one. Changing turns. I swear. Two, how quickly can I start the coffee? Three, am I hungry enough for breakfast? Four, what is my first meeting? What's my first task of the day that I need to prepare for? And five, what is happening on my social media feed? Those are the five things that my brain goes to naturally every morning. My heart is inclined towards me. It's what my, suits my desires. We are preoccupied with self and are so preoccupied with what I want that we are quick to miss the I am and what he wants for us. We need this prayer. Uh, can I have you read O for us? Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Excellent. This is, again, where the spirit who dwells in you is the spirit who wrote the scriptures comes in. It's a wonderful link between our souls and the word of God when we plead with the spirit to show it to us. Charles Spurgeon once observed, texts will often refuse to reveal their treasures till you open them up with the keys of prayer. And let me say this. I'm not talking about some secret knowledge, right? That, Lord, tell me the secret numbers so I can know when you return on this upcoming day. Lord, may I open the text of scripture and know if this is the person that you would like me to date. Lord, may I open it. There's not some secret knowledge that we're asking to get there, but it does open up, yes, the will of God for our lives as we deal in the word. You. You. We are prone to wander. If you're like me, mad at ADHD, when we're dealing with scripture, there are forces at play that want us to think of anything but the word. This might sound familiar to you. You open your Bible. I can't wait to get into the life of Paul. Let's see, where did I leave off? Oh yeah, the shipwreck. Man, I love boats. I wonder if the fish are biting today. How much would it be to rent a boat? Can I go out this weekend? Can I have money for that? I need where did I leave off? Oh, yeah, Paul. Acts. Why do they call it Acts? There's got to be a better name for the book of Acts. Maybe the book of flaming tongues. I'm all hungry. There's got to be something to eat. We're quick to scatter. And we need the call upon the Spirit to unite us to be able to focus. He promises that we'll be with us there when we do. We need to be united. And what needs to be united? Our hearts, which is the Bible's way of describing our will and our desires. Our will needs to be united to God in fear of the Lord. Not that we would just tremble, but we'd stand in awe and sit in awe. 
as we hold the very words of our Creator to us? Do we see the text of Scripture as a love letter? Or do we see it as just a checklist? Pass. Let's get a boy. Zach. Matt says this, every human being on the planet is seeking happiness. That's not the problem. The problem is that we seek it outside of God. Right quest, wrong destination. Everyone's seeking happiness. We know that. We turn on the news for any second. When I was a kid, I thought video games would make me happy. And they were awesome. Look, I spent a lot of hours behind the controller, right? But I ended up falling in love with reading. Much better. And when we are in the Word, we get more of God. We get more of God. In his 2005 commencement address at Kennedy College, the late American novelist David Foster Wallace captured this universal, even primal, human dynamic. Wallace was not a Christian, and yet his words strike a profound spiritual chord. Listen to what he says. The compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they, are finally, they finally plant you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need even more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is this. They're unconscious. These are the default settings. What a profound statement from someone who did not understand or know the truth. But he can very much tell he can see the human condition. It is set right before us on the table. Many of us are just too afraid to deal with it. So will we deal with it this year as we looked at the text of Scripture? When we read that, do you see yourself in the mirror of Wallace's words? I know I can. 